0: You've been looking for inspiration hope and an insightful look into literacy transformation you have found the right place this mini-series is a convergence of ideas experiences and aspirations a symphony of voices that will resonate far beyond the sound waves of our voices so with hearts full of hope minds open to possibility, let us dive into the rich tapestry of discussions, ideas, and dreams that await us. Together, as literacy leaders, let us be the change we wish to see in this world. Thank you for joining us on this remarkable journey towards a brighter future and a more literate Society. Welcome everyone to our podcast this week as a part of this literacy leadership mini series, where we are bringing another star studded speaker and advocate to the stage today. And with that, I will say that we've got Sonia Thomas, and she is going to be sharing about the importance of advocacy and community in this leadership experience, this literacy journey that so many people are on. I'm Terry Nolan, and I am joined with my co-moderators. I've got Linda Diamond, and I've got Dr. Tim Odegaard. Unfortunately, Dr. Tracy Wheaton couldn't be with us this time. This week, we are going to have Tim come center stage and spend some time talking with Sonia. Go ahead, Tim.
1: Thank you so much, Terry, and to our esteemed guest here, we are so thrilled to have her voice added to our panel of experts out there doing the stuff in the field. So Sonia Thomas is executive director of Nashville for And you might be asking, what is Nashville for That is also known as parents requiring our public education system to lead, which seems perfectly well-suited to a literacy podcast on leadership, the nonprofit she runs offers a six-week fellowship program training parents to advocate for their children's education and for system-wide improvements in the Metro Nashville Public Schools. So without any further ado, I want to really help you guys to get into the weeds here and learn from our expert. Thank you so much, Sonya, for being here today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: We like to start off with kind of understanding where you're coming from. So could you tell us the origin story behind Propel? What drives you in this work? So...
2: I'll tell you, I have been fighting for my son since he was in kindergarten. And back in July 2018, I actually joined a parent advocacy fellowship where I learned about the landscape of education right here in Nashville, Tennessee. And I sat across from 14 other parents in the world who lived in neighborhoods like myself and they looked like me, but also our children were going to some of the lowest performing schools in Nashville. And as I learned, I realized I wasn't crazy. I knew that something was going on. And so that small group of parents began to canvas the streets of Nashville. And we went to some of our most struggling communities. And we door knocked in these ugly little yellow Big Bird t-shirts, is what I call them. They probably were 50 cents. And we had them over our work clothes. We'd get off work and knock on the doors of these parents and ask them that they know what a priority school was. And of course, those parents thought there was something good, right? When you hear the word priority, it makes you feel all special and everything, all warm and fuzzy. But we had to educate them and let them know that it meant that their children were going to schools in the bottom 5% of the state of Tennessee. And at that time, those schools were all in our neighborhood. And we had to sound the alarm. And after I learned and graduated from that Parent Advocacy Fellowship, I made the decision to move my son out of that school. He was going to the seventh grade at that time, and it was a hard decision because he didn't want to move. He wanted to go to private school, but unfortunately, he could not pass the test to get into school. And so, I made a deal with him. I said, "Look here, let's go to this school." He's like, "Oh, they're gonna be rough on me." I'm like, "It's okay. It's okay." At the end of the semester, we'll you know transition you. We'll get you all caught up and transition you. And so. The very first report card I sat across from his teacher, who looked at me and said, My son was on task. And I'm like, That's great. He's prepared. I'm like, Awesome. And she said, He has all of his stuff. All of his work is turned in. I'm like, You got that right. I'll check that backpack every night. And then she said, His behavior is good. And I'm like, Sitting there, really proud. You know, Hey, yeah, we don't play that. We go to school to learn, not to misbehave. But she said that he was reading on a second grade reading level. And that, felt and it still feels like the worst sentence to play in my head. I felt betrayed and hurt and just could not understand how that could happen because I fought and fought and fought and fought, and fought for him. I spent my mortgage money on a University of Tennessee reading preparation programs. I did everything. I read to him for 30 minutes. I did everything everybody asked me to do. I made sure he was in the bed. I made sure that I gave him breakfast in the morning. I did everything. And he was still reading on a second grade reading level. And so October 2018, myself and eight other co-founders, we founded Nashville Propel. And we have been fighting ever since. We are organizing parents all across the city of Nashville. We're developing them into powerful parent leaders. We are igniting a movement that demands equitable policies and practices right here in Nashville, Tennessee. And we do that every day. And that's exactly what we're
1: going to do. Oh, my goodness. There's just so much there. And Sonia, just thank you from the start of just sharing that with me. Your story resonates, I think, a lot with those of us who were on this podcast. And have you ever talked to your son about how he felt? Because it sounds like he's a good child, like my son's a good child. It sounds like He's got a good family who instills in him values and what the work ethic is. How did he feel? Because you felt betrayed by those schools. You were ill-prepared and you didn't know what was coming down the pike, I imagine. Start with that betrayal for you.
2: The betrayal is to be told to do the wrong things for so long. We're talking from kindergarten all the way to seventh grade to be told to do the wrong things and to be looked at as a Black parent who's not doing what they're supposed to do. To be parent-shamed and to be laughed at, to be asked, how did your child get the seventh grade and read on the second grade reading level? You must not be doing something. To hear people say things like, if your child is not doing good in school, it's your fault, it's the parent's fault for not doing this, that is the betrayal. The betrayal is that people know, they know now, I know that people wake up in the morning and they, for the most part, want to do right by children. But by 12 noon, when you've had all this data and you've seen all these children suffer, we should know better by now. We have too much research. We know what's happening in school buildings is not working. We know that. And so there's the betrayal. There's eyes to betrayal. And for my son, the emotional damage that this does to a child is... Not only criminal, you know, the fact that they're not being taught how to read is criminal, but the emotional damage, the school to prison pipelines that this is opening up, the way that this is destroying family, lives, the lack of having a choice and being stuck in low performing schools where three of the kids are reading in that entire school and going your entire school career, not going to a school that gives you a quality education. That is criminal and children. Cannot be stuck in schools that are not teaching them how to read.
1: So, what has your personal lived experience been with the culture shaming that comes when educators and others look at people, especially people of color or from low economic status, and they blame us for our children's outcomes opposed to looking internally at them? Or they shame our children and they blame our children for something about them. What's your personal experience been with that?
2: First of all, I lived it. I am the people that I serve. I've had it done to me. But every day I get up to build a movement where we build relationships with parents all over the city. And it's almost like we can finish their sentence. It's happening to Black parents, Latino parents, white parents, you name it. It's happening to everybody. But when America gets a cold, Black folk get a virus, okay, gets worse. Like we cannot pinpoint a time in history where we've seen academic achievement in the Black community. Right. And so this thing has been going on for a decade after decade after decade after decade. And we keep hearing the, I call it the fake shock factor. We just had the NAEP scores come out. The National Report card just came out. And Secretary Cardona, the Education Secretary for the United States, his response is shock. He already knew. He already knew what was going on. Folks like me and people listening to this podcast. We've been telling them, we've been sounding the alarm before a pandemic. We had a pandemic and then it was amplified. Then it started happening to everybody, right? Because nobody was going to school in Tennessee and in other states. And then parents really started to realize how catastrophic it was. But we've been saying this. We've been saying that our children are not being taught how to read. Children have the right to be taught how to read. I don't care if they're Black. I don't care what zip code they're in. I don't care how much money their mom and daddy has. I don't care what their mom and daddy did. We have to stop looking at children as struggles and we have to look at them as real life human beings, real visions and the genius that they are.
1: Yeah, that's really powerful. It's just a lot to take in. I like the phrase fake shock because if anybody would be surprised by what's happened and which communities and people would be most impacted by this as well, shouldn't be a shock to anybody. I guess I wonder how you form alliances. I've shared many times, open and candidly, that as a person with dyslexia, a son with dyslexia, I see community amongst people like you, Sonia, and my sister, Tracy, and many others, because our children have the same predetermined outcome. They all wind up at higher rates of incarceration, more likely to be pregnant as teens, more likely to be repeat offenders if they don't get the help they need. I view it as if we have a common destiny we could be a common solution to the problem. So as you look and you work across the Nashville community and you look and work with others, what are the commonalities for shared mission and drive amongst the people you're supporting there in Nashville?
2: Breath in our bodies. I know that sounds a bit, you know, we're talking human beings here. Warm blood running through our bodies. Like that's the commonality, right? Reading shouldn't be a privilege. Reading is a human rights issue. It is a social justice issue. It is a breath-in-your-body issue. We got children going from schoolyards to prison yards to graveyards, as you just mentioned. And, you know, the myth behind it is that it has something to do with people's IQs. And it has absolutely nothing to do with an IQ. It, It just has to do with a right. And it has to do with caring. I think that people are generally not even caring about others being able to read because they have been programmed to think that it's something that can be self-taught or it's something that your mom and your dad can do at the house. When we already know what the problem is, we know that we've got to ensure that our educators have the tools that they need. We don't send surgeons into surgery without knowing how to use a scalpel or the cauterize to do surgery. They don't go in there delivering babies that they haven't been taught how to deliver babies, I even say educators have been victims, okay? You know, they've been victims of this also. And I think that the message needs to be that we've all got to do this together. We need great educators, but we need them to be equipped. And we need for them to be in this movement. It's a movement. This is not about advocacy. This is about building a movement of people who care, people who want to get an understanding of what's going on. Because we have the information, we have the research. We have the background. We have some people with some letters behind the name, but then we've got some mamas and some daddies like me who are not gonna take this mess anymore, who look at our children as geniuses. And I want people to hear this. When these babies are born and we put them up like Gustavo and we look at them and we say, this is my little engineer. This is my little football player. We have a vision for our children when they come out of the womb. And that's what children should be looked at as visions from the time they start talking all the way to the time that they graduate through school. They should be looked at as visions. And we have to do what we need to do to make sure that those visions come to pass and stop overlooking children. Yes, we know that some of these children are underserved. That has nothing to do with it. That should be more of a reason why we should stop overlooking them and making sure that they have what they need to reach their greatest potential.
1: I just have to say that as a parent too, I know I physically felt the earth shift under me the moment I held my son for the first time, that it was the most grounding experience that I had experienced in my entire time of being and every other accomplishment up until that was just secondary. And then also I felt this immense amount of responsibility. The reason why he was born was because of a choice that was made that he would be brought into this world. And other people were part of that decision process. So think about this. It's a shame and blame game, but no one's taking responsibility. But I think a parent role is I have to take responsibility for my child. And when we take a perception of I don't see a distinction between my child and your child and their worth as children, I think that's where I come into when I took ownership and responsibility in a new way. How do you try to find responsibility and ownership of this national crisis in the community work that you're doing in the streets of Nashville?
2: The reason why I do this work is because I never want another parent or grandparent to feel the way that I felt when I realized that my son was not getting the education that he needs and he deserves. And I believe that all children have the right to be taught. To read, and I want to make sure that, that happens. And so I call myself the mother of many. I call myself I Sonya because I want to make sure that every child, every child, has the right to be taught how to read. I just believe that, and I just believe that is the game changer. You know, when we want to change what poverty looks like, when we want to change what our criminal justice system looks like. When we want to change how healthcare is being rendered. Teach both out on me, right? Teach so they'll be able to take care of themselves. So they'll be able to have a life of, of plenty of many have the opportunity, right? Give people a fighting chance. We're talking about many of the children are not even getting a fighting chance. A lot of these kids are sitting in alternative schools or juvenile detention centers and they can't even write their name. That's real life. Mm-hmm. I'm not making that up. I talk to somebody every morning who works in the juvenile justice system and literally children can't write their names. And then the myth is what well, they can talk. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. You know, your language skills are different from your reading skills. The brain is not set up to read the English language. You talk before you read, but what should be happening in school is everything that they're able to say, they should be able to read. And that's not happening.
3: Yeah, this is such an important movement. But I have a question about the school system. How is the system responding? Are you getting traction with district-level administrators and school-level principals? Because I'm going to tell you, I tried working with Nashville, and it didn't go so well. They weren't really super interested. This was about three years ago when I was trying to help people who did care about shifting to the practices that do teach reading and Nashville wasn't interested. So I really want to know from your perspective, have you made headway? Are the leaders listening? Are they
2: changing practices as far as you can tell? I think that is a wonderful question. And I'm going to answer that a couple of ways. First of all, they're going to have to listen. I walked away from 24 years of nursing, my lucrative income, whatever that looked like, to build this movement. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. They're going to listen, number one. Number two, I want to shout out the state of Tennessee for the literacy reforms that they put in place, July 2021, where Reading 360 was implemented and the science of reading and stronger, rigorous curriculum was put in place. And so I think the state of Tennessee is leading in that part of it. I remember going to church some years ago, we talked about transition, how difficult it is to transition. And I think it is difficult for school districts to transition. I have seen a few of the schools that I know for a fact who are actually using the science of reading. And it remains to be seen whether or not they're using it. That's the problem. So we can have all these things implemented. And our school districts, and everybody can shout, all right, So, the district is saying that they're training their educators around the science of reading, they're giving them this professional development. The next question needs to be about implementation. What this district has done poorly is implement their great programming. That's great. So, we can talk about it all we want. I think what remains to be seen is whether or not the science of reading is being implemented correctly. I think it's going to take us a little time. I hope to see a little movement at the next TCAP scores. That's the only receipt that we have. The nation's report card was a prophecy. It told us what we've been prophesying and what's happening around the country. And so I hope to see that we are not just growing, but we're growing at a rate where children are reading before they get 80 years old. Wow.
3: Yeah. So powerful and you know what's interesting to me because three years ago they weren't ready they definitely weren't
2: ready one ready for a movement of parents like that for appropriate legal they weren't ready you're not ready they are not ready they are still trying to figure out what to do with us but we're not going anywhere so literacy is a school choice issue and so when I say that they have to have an exit ramp they cannot be stuck in schools who are not teaching them how to read and so there lies the education for parents too right making them aware. So right now we're in the middle of a campaign of awareness around priority schools. The newest list just dropped last month. And so we're helping the public and educating our parents. What does that mean? What does it mean to be in a priority school? It's a lowest performance school in the state of Tennessee. What it means is one of the schools has three students out of 290 students reading on grade level. The parents need to run about their school. Okay. (laughs) And so Tennessee does have a voucher program. I'm not sure if that's going to help. This is the thing. We're not pro-traditional school. We're not pro-charter school. We're not pro-private school. We want to make sure that all kids get a quality education. And so parents, if you're listening to me, I don't care what school they go to. I never tell a parent where to send their child. But you got to make sure they teach the children how to read in there. So wherever you send your child, make sure they are making sure that those children have the foundational literacy skills that they need. They're decoding. Don't wait until they're in third grade. Parents, I want you to make sure they're decoding by first grade. I want you to go in there and I want you to specifically ask them, is my child decoding? Are they reading the word and reading it quickly and understanding what they're reading? We've got to educate parents on the questions to ask. I always teach parents, question everything, question everybody. There is where you're going to find the truth. And don't be afraid to ask questions. And don't be afraid to tell them to show you the receipt. Show me their test scores. Tell me what this means. What does that mean to you? What interventions are you putting in place for my kid? Does my kid have a learning disability? And does my kid have dyslexia? You got to ask them specifically about that. Most of these schools act like they don't know what dyslexia is. And you know what? They probably don't run. Go to one that does. Make your own exit ramp don't stay stuck in a school and have your child spend their entire education career not knowing how to read get them out if they're not teaching reading over there get them out but what we're doing is making sure parents understand what it means to read i didn't know what it meant for a child to read until now now you can't shut me up but my child was older and what's scary is this country goes to war and they never leave the dead on the battlefield but they will leave children not being able to read i ain't never seen nothing like it so we have children who have been passed on such as my son such as myself you're looking at a struggling reader and they've been passed on we don't even leave our dead on the battlefield where's the respect where is this country's heart Where is this country's soul? I don't know. We got to make sure that we don't make reading political. I wasn't born Democrat or Republican. I was born Sonia Thomas, and my mama had a vision for me. And so we got to kick out the politics. We got to stop the red tape. We know what works for children. We got to stop making excuses. You can't make excuses and teach children how to read. Ain't no way.
0: Sonia, one of the things that we are doing on this podcast is drawing out the leadership characteristics, traits, and qualities of those speakers that we have come and join us. So I've been over here taking notes. And first and foremost, the characteristic that I see that jumps out at you, it's probably jumping into the headphones of those that are listening, and that's your passion. You are passionate about your work. I can hear it. I can feel it. There is this presence here in this episode today. But also, I heard that you found allies. You knew you couldn't do this alone. This is not a me issue. This is a we issue. You found allies. I also wrote down, you became knowledgeable. You knew that you had to learn in order to move this movement forward. So, those are the three things that I wrote down. I know there's so much more about who you are as a person, your leadership traits, qualities. What do you have to say about being a leader, whether you're a classroom teacher, superintendent, a principal, a parent, a community advocate? Doesn't matter.
2: Tell us about leadership from your standpoint. I'm angry. Everybody should be angry. Every person under the sound of my voice shouldn't be angry shouldn't be pissed off and everybody should be losing sleep and if you are not doing those two things stay home stay at home we don't need you we don't need your leadership it's anybody that can smile through and sleep through the fact that children are not being taught how to read I don't know what to tell you but this thing it's painful and to watch children struggle for no reason. That's what's talking about. We know what to do to help them. So to me, there is no reason why we should have so many children not reading on grade level and not reading and reaching their greatest potential. There's no way to convince me otherwise. And so I say to the leadership in this country, we have the receipts, we have them, but also, I want to ask them if they can continue to look into these children's eyes and keep doing what they're doing. Can you keep on looking in Mary's eyes? Can you keep on looking in CJ's eyes and doing the same thing that you're doing? It's time to stop the insanity. It's time for people to get angry. I don't understand why the streets aren't filled with people protesting and, you know, shouting out loud that these children have the right to be taught to read. I just don't understand it. But I think we have got a long way to go with educating people. And so that's what we have to do. We have to help people to understand the why behind the children not reading.
0: So right. And I don't think so many people understand the urgency in all of this. I have even heard from administrators, well, you know, we've got a really good graduation rate. We've got about 70% of our students are graduating. I've heard that one. or you know, we've got about 80% of our kids are reading at grade levels, so we're doing good. What would you say to that, Sonia? What about the other kids?
2: I would ask them, where are those kids now? Where are those people now? So that's the real measurement, right? Because, you know, those numbers, the graduation number, you can give people grades. There are people who have gone through their entire education system. <laughs> and so... That's fine that people graduate, but let's talk about what happens to them after they graduate. I think that's the other measurement that this country has got to start talking about. Don't just talk about employment. Let's talk about the type of employment. Let's measure there. Let's go into the juvenile justice system and let's start measuring how many of those kids can read. That's a number that I want to hear. I want somebody to actually get a calculation for me of how many children sitting in a jail cell can't read people have low-wage jobs how many of those can read because you know what every six weeks I sit in a class of parents and once we tell a personal story they begin to reveal how they can't read so there are so many people so many people who have this dirty secret that's what I call it I call it a dirty secret now because people have had things happen to them that they've been afraid to talk about the fact that they have not been taught how to read and the shame that many of the children feel, the behaviors that come out because they cannot read. let's talk about those things. Let's talk about the connection between those things, and then I think we'll go in a better direction. Then I believe that it'll start hitting home with people. And then I believe people will start getting an understanding.
1: So for our listeners out there, they're probably thinking, "Wow, this is a really uncomfortable conversation with a lot of energy, but I think you really are addressing an issue that the only sane reaction should be the reaction you're having. When we really look at these children in their eyes and we go out there and we see them, we realize that they're just like us and our children. So what outlets have you found to channel this energy, to work with schools, to work with the community, and to try to have a constructive outcome but for the betterment around that? Because the passion is real, the anger is real, it's justified. You've got a successful organization. So you've got to have these constructive channels in which you channel this for the betterment of those children.
2: So I focus on parents. I work for parents and I work for students. I don't work for systems. We have a system failure. So I don't work for the system. So I unapologetically say what I got to say to them. And I give them just what I'm giving y'all. And I tell them the truth. I just did a meeting yesterday in a room of educators. And I unapologetically showed up the way that I showed up here. And we had, a transparent conversation about literacy. And so my job is to do just that, is to speak truth to power. And my job is to amplify the voices of parents like myself. And my job is to make sure that their stories are heard. And my job is to make sure that the stories of their children are heard. And my job is to make sure that We apply pressure. We hold people accountable. It has nothing to do with me liking people in the school system or not liking people in the school system. What I don't like is the fact that we got struggling readers. And I have a question for all school systems. How will we know the difference between a struggling reader and poor instruction? And when you can answer that, then I'm going to leave you alone. But until then, I'm showing up the way that I'm showing up. Nothing else matters to me. It's not about me being nice. It's not about me liking people. What I don't like is the fact that so many children and adults don't know how to read.
1: So it's clear that you're the catalyst and you're the accelerant for a fire that you want to burn through a system and help to rejuvenate and to create something that would be better, new growth, a new way of doing things based on what we know and to build from that seed and that kernel. And I've got Linda over here with a question, so I'm going to let her ask it.
3: Something you just said, Sonia, raised the memory a uh, Dr. Sally Shaywitz, who did a lot of the research on dyslexia, said that a lot of our kids, it's not going to be dyslexia, it's dystautia. And I think she's a hundred percent right. And finding out, having school systems dig in, identify the kids for sure who have dyslexia, but also recognize that good practices from the start could have prevented so much of this. And what you're gonna do for a child with dyslexia and what you're gonna do for this dystodia, a lot of it's gonna be the same. And the frustration that I experience, and hearing you, uh, the pain which for me was amplified when my brother committed suicide, having dyslexia. The pain of knowing that we do know what to do and then seeing that there is so much reluctance and resistance. And that's the frustration that I have around this whole experience. And I hear it in, you know, me, I'm angry too. I'm angry because I lost a brother. I'm angry because there are all these kids who can't read and parents who are paying a price with their kids about this. And it just is heartbreaking. And I think what you've done and for our listeners to bring that human face and that human pain, the human voice. Of what this, maybe we're done with COVID or the worst of it. We have a pandemic of kids who can't read. And that's been going on way before anything else. It's just too long. And that's what you've amplified. And I just so appreciate it because I think that you bring that heart to this whole conversation.
2: Thank you, Linda. It's, it's I tell you, I, I never thought that I would be doing the work that I'm doing. Like I said, I was a nurse. I had a career in healthcare and research, cancer research. And I always liken this to having a cure and saying, oh, I'm not going to give it to you. That's what it feels like. Like we have the cure and we just wave it in front of people and say, you know what? You can't have it. And It just feels, it's a painful thing to think about all the time. The fact that literacy is so unimportant to this country. And it's really become a privilege, right? When it's not, it's something like an oxygen, like we need it. And I think it's a shame that, that those who have the power to ensure that we do right by people. This is a do right by people thing that they're not doing it. And so that's why I won't shut up. That's why I'll continue to bring it. Anybody can get it as far as I'm concerned. They can have all this. And I make sure that I get up every day and I'm gonna give it to everybody until I can't give it no more. So the Lord calls me home. I'm gonna give it to everybody because it's just that important. It's important for us to do it for the children who are here and the children who are to come and the children who have left us, unfortunately. And children who are in the criminal justice system. We've got a lot of work to do. And I thank God for people like yourself and everyone who's a part of this podcast who understands that we have to do this together. That's why we ignite a movement at Nashville Propel. We've got to ignite a movement of people. We've got to have allies. We've got to have great educators. We are fighting for educators. We're not here to bash teachers. We're here to say, teacher, When you went to the college and university that you paid all that student loan for to get out of school and not to make any money, they did not give you a class to teach children how to read, but then put you in a classroom to teach children how to read. What sense does that make? Somebody failed you too, sweetheart. We got to make sure that they know that we're fighting for them. And we need great educators to get on board with us because we want to make sure that children are successful. I just always say, I don't believe that people just Get up in the morning to make sure that children don't know how to read. I feel like people want the best for children, but we've got to educate them. And once they know better, though, Linda, once we have educated them, then I got a problem with them if they don't do what's right. But right now, I think that we've got to make sure that our educators are equipped and they understand. And I'll tell you about the thing that I think that is unfortunate about this country. This country wants everything fast. But those of us who understand the science know if you do balanced literacy, they're going to memorize a whole bunch of words. Boom, 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 boom. Then it's going to stop, right? But a child who's taught with the science and given the foundation of skills will end up reading more words than that child who memorized those words. So everybody wants things quick. They don't want to work on phonics and phenomenal awareness. They don't want to do that, right? Because it takes longer. And so this country, everything moves on quick. I want to get rich fast, right? I want to lose weight fast. That's me. I want to lose this weight fast, right? And so I think that is one of the problems too. The people are not going to want to take the time to do what's right. And instead, they rather do what's wrong and hurt a whole bunch of children.
1: Roger, one of the things you shared about that really echoes from that is the generational and the legacy work. And so I think that the counterpoint to that is, is that actually creating the change and the people and the personnel and all the practices that are going to be needed will take some time. And making sure that we get all those kids reading is going to take an even a amount of time. I've often said that I'm not fighting and working for my son. I'm doing that for my grandchildren and their children. So I think you have a balancing act there, right? Every child and the children right now in those classes, they deserve the right to be able to read. But we also are sanguine, right, you're a smart woman, you're educated, you've got a career that you decided to leave so that you could do the work that you do out of your heart. How do you help parents juggle those and to set priorities with your organization about the short-term needs of the many that are in our schools right now versus the long-term gains that we can achieve for generations to come?
2: So what I really want to do is make sure that we're amplifying the voices of parents and students and like, telling their story. Our job is to tell the story and to humanize this whole situation. I believe that folks are getting six-figure salaries. They're wearing red-bottom shoes and wearing Louis Vuitton bags. And once they know what's going on, it is up to them to help us to figure out how to get there. That's why they get paid so much, okay? But we as parents, this organization, we want to make sure that the stories are being told because like Emily telling my story, the bravery in doing that because nobody was telling the story of a Black parent who had the struggles that I had. The story matters. There's a danger in a single story, okay? And so we thought dyslexia was a white mom problem, a white child problem. I didn't know. I didn't know anything about dyslexia until I started talking to Emily. And so the important thing right now is to educate parents. It's funny because when we go through our six weeks class, at week two, the parents, you know what they started to say? It's like clockwork. I thought I was crazy. It never fails. They thought they was crazy. It was like, I knew something was wrong. And so I think that the important thing for us to do right now is to make sure that we are storytelling and we are educating these parents. And we're getting in front of educators like I did yesterday, humanized, so that they're not looking at the child as a struggle. Many of the parents that we serve coming from our most struggling communities. Their children are zoned or attend the lowest performing schools. And so they're looked at as people just in poverty. Oh, you know, little Willie, his mama don't have that much money. So that's why he's not learning. Mm -hmm. So we got stuff to get past that. We got to get past the fact that we look like a struggle or talk like a struggle. We got to get through the racism and the bias. And that right there is the thing that I have to fight every day is to make sure that we're humanized and said, hey, I know this little Willie probably lives in the housing project, Well, let's get him out. Let's teach him how to read. Let's not keep him captive there. Not have another generation of this going on. So I make sure that we're humanizing the situation, that we are educating. So many people are uneducated around literacy and reading, and they think it's just a. Parent thing that is just like you're not teaching your child to read, that's why they can't read. I'm a teacher and I can't do anything. I had somebody say that teachers can't fix what parents want to address. What the hell?
1: It's interesting because this is the theme from your stories you've been sharing it, which is part of what you are doing with your community organization and grassroots movement is taking what they perceive to be your problem and reminding them that it's their problem or it's a shared problem because there are children in the schools, there are children in the home, and we all have an obligation to do our parts. And what often happens when we look different is that those differences are used to say, yeah, but we know it's not happening in your home, but it's probably happening in their home. But I could imagine as you come together with parents, it's probably not just the parents that look like you that are saying that you hear the same story from. My mama was told the same thing that you were told. And she was told that it was all because of us being poor and white and from the hills and from the Ozarks that we weren't thriving. And I wasn't a good student because I was too stupid to have dyslexia. And by the way, we were too poor to do right by me. So I don't necessarily see this as class, color, or greed. I see it a lot as economics and stereotypes and disenfranchisement for historically marginalized generations. And those of us from the hills and Appalachia are just as marginalized as others from other places. We have a different Immigration path to this country for darn sure. My generation got on the boat and came over here for a better life. Your ancestors were put on a boat and brought yes. here in chains. That's a different story. We find ourselves, however, at a similar state right now, in a position of needing to create a situation where it's viewed as at least a shared problem, but definitely not shouldered on the parents of the children in the situation. So it seems that's a resonation point for you and I as far as where it is and. It's unfortunate that it takes a personal tragedy in someone's life or personal hardship to make us empathetic to the others that we should have empathy for. But a lot of the reasons why I find that people are pulled to this is because they've had a personal connection, either to themselves, a sibling, a child, a parent, of seeing firsthand the collateral damage that is an inability or a struggle to read and write. So and does that resonate? Does that seem respectful of your story and what you're trying to share?
2: I think you have to look at where we live, though. I was born and raised in Nashville. I was born in 37208, which is the highest incarcerated zip code in the nation. Excuse me, This is a Black person problem in Nashville because of where I live at. they has got a lot of racism. I'm just going to call it out. And so I know that they are children of all colors and all economic backgrounds that are struggling with the same problem. And I don't diminish that at all. I'm fighting for them too, okay? But I have to call out the racism in Nashville. And I have to call it out at the front door and I have to speak to it because we've got a predominantly black school district where there's never been a time where there's been academic achievement for black students. So I have to call that out unapologetically and say that. And I do unapologetically say that. And these are conversations that are hard, right? These are conversations that are hard. They're not easy. But I live in ground zero of this problem. And so I have to talk about what I represent. And I have to speak to that. When we have parents and children of all backgrounds in our movement, and I fight just as hard for them. We know if we can clean this up for Black children, we have never seen academic achievement. My God, we know what this is going to do for everybody. We know that.
1: Yeah, and that might be, and that's simply true of Nashville. The lowest performers are our Native Americans, the people they were here first. They're a huge sore on us as a society as well. The two largest underperforming people in the schools are African American boys and our Native American populations. And it's just heartbreaking if you think about the humanity in that. That you can call it out based off of the lowest performers which is they have been systemically left behind and some were brought here and others were here first and they're the ones who were underperforming in our schools and you can't say that it's got to be about them when it's all of them for the most part are really struggling to do well
2: yeah you named it it's like everybody like how does that happen right how do you have a school where three students out of 290 students I only three of them are reading on gray novels. Man, that's unheard of. You mean to tell me that 287 mamas and daddies ain't doing what they're supposed to? See, you got to make it make sense to me.
1: It doesn't. It's illogical. You're exactly right about that.
2: There's nothing logical about that. But those are hard conversations, right? To talk about that, to say that, because when you call that out, right, then there may be people that be like, my child go to that school because they may not even know that's right they may not even know so the first thing we want to do is we relationship build with parents too to make sure that we're able to have those delicate conversations with them. i think that is important mm. a lot of the parents will come through our class like that is their first realization that their children are not reading on grade level because somebody has betrayed them and has looked at them and said oh Little John, he's just a boy. He's just being a boy. Do you know how many times I had that said to me? A so lot. We, so then we have to say, wait man, let me tell you about this boy. Let me tell you why they're saying this about this. Let me show you the date on boys, in particular, black little boys. We have to have those conversations. And those are hard conversations. But also, they walk out of there questioning everything, questioning everybody and they find the truth. We have some parents who care about their children. I tell this story now because I've got a parent that just finished our 17th cohort who had three jobs. We did the class virtually for six weeks. She was never late. She was there every time with her head set on working at a local fast food chain, listening, learning, ready to take action. So don't tell me parents don't care about their children. But these parents are struggling. She has three jobs. That's right. Three? How do you work three jobs?
1: You do it. You do what you got to do. That's what all of us parents do. So my parents did.
2: Yeah, but then we've got this crisis. It's all connected, right? This is like a circle. So then if she can't put a roof over her children's head and she can't feed them, then she's going to be shamed. And if she's not sitting right there with them, then she's shamed. We've got a social economic problem. That's why this conversation is big, it is huge. But from the outside, she'll be looked at as somebody that doesn't care about her ship. If they're struggling to read, it's like, you ought to be at home with them. People get that saying to them.
1: Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Linda, do you have something to add to this?
3: It just brings up so many thoughts about, you know, how we've failed as a country. And one of the things that I do take away, Sonia, is the stories. I think you're right that telling the stories is a powerful lever for this work. And I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Keon Anderson. I don't know if you have heard of him. You can look him up. His mother knew something wasn't right when he was in first grade, and she ended up fighting the school, not getting support. He finally was identified and put into special ed, but the special ed teachers didn't know what to do either. And it wasn't until ninth grade when he had a teacher who was trained in Linda Bell, who taught him to read and he picked it up and he's now Dr. Keon Anderson and he writes books. A lot of them are on Amazon and I had the privilege of interviewing him also in a podcast because it's the story of someone who's been there and been affected that then has that impact and I think that's one of the things I took away from you it's the importance of the story that can bring people together and his story Kareem Weaver's story with his kids and we're seeing more of this amplified and I just kept remembering a movie that I watched for the third time recently, Won't Back Down. Oh my gosh, yeah, exactly. That was a movie that also was about the story of what was happening in another school where basically no one could read and no one could do math. It wasn't just reading. And I think we forget sometimes that just giving data, just giving, you know, the research, that for sure is part of the knowledge building. But if we don't humanize by telling the story, it's not going to have the impact.
2: Yeah. I mean, the data is the receipt. The data is the prophecy, right? And the data should inform like decisions that we make. And I always teach parents about that, right? Like it's more than this data. The report cards that you get sent home to you, have data on them, right? But an A don't mean the kid can read. It could just mean that they turn in their homework that you helped them to do. It does not mean that they have comprehension. And I think the importance of knowing what it means to, be, to read, right? I can read stuff, but I struggle with comprehension. And I tell parents, it's just like making a batch of brownies. You got all this stuff that goes into the recipe so that you have this perfect brownie, right? But if you leave something out, you can still say you got a brownie. You may not say it's as good, but you still can say you have a brownie. And that's what has happened in reading for our children. Like, they'll say that they can read. And what has happened is they may not be able to comprehend. They may not be as fluent. And they don't have the background knowledge that they need around what they are reading. And so can they really read? Can they really progress in a college and university the way that they desire to do? And so it's just so many, I call it the recipe. We got to make sure that the kids have the recipe. And that's a way that I kind of bring it eye level with parents and make sure that they understand. They're like, okay, so they're not teaching them everything and they're not giving them everything they need to read. No, they're memorizing stuff. They have sight words and all of those things in they really can't read. They're just memorizing stuff and looking at pictures. And you'll think they can read. Scary stuff. Scary stuff.
0: Sonia, as we begin to wrap up here, I want to draw out a couple of other things that you said. You believe in all kids. That was a big one that I heard. You believe in all kids. Every child, not every child, every human being has mm-hmm. value. And we need to see that value in every person. And I so appreciate the words that you are the mother of many. I'm going to remember that, Sonia, because you're out there fighting for so many kids. Not so many kids. You're fighting for all kids. And Sonia, with that, tell us a little bit about some of the things that Nashville Propel does and tell us a little bit about the organization.
2: Okay. As I was saying, we're developing parents. We build relationships. We have a relationship with parents in the community that their schools don't have. As a matter of fact, I went to a meeting yesterday, I mentioned that earlier, where the people were from different schools here in Nashville, somebody of lowest performing school. They're like, how do we connect with parents? So you got to listen to them. You got to listen to them. They come in there, it's six of y'all, it's one of them. It's like we're interrogating them. They bring up an issue and you act like you don't see it. You know, we build unique relationships with our parents all over the city. But as I said, we build their knowledge is really powerful. And we build their knowledge around the landscape, the issues and the policies. And we build their knowledge around building campaigns so that we can advocate or build a movement together and take collective action. And so that's what we're doing right now. We're making sure that our parents are in the know. And we're starting our 18th cohort fellowship this Thursday where we'll do exactly what we said we're going to do in our mission. We've seen how that has impacted the parents in the city. A lot of our parents had never gone to a school board meeting. They didn't even know they could go to one. They didn't know who their school board member was. So who do you take the issues to? They've never been in front of a state representative. They've never been in front of the governor, never been in front of the president of the United States. What can all these people do? What can the mayor do? When it comes to education, when you know who can make the decision who can influence, there's power in that. So we're making sure we're educating our parents. If we're educating people in the community. We're educating educators. And we're making sure that people hear our stories. And we're amplifying our parents' voices on the local TV, on national TV. We're featured in The Truth About Reading that's produced by Nick Netton. So we are making sure that we're amplifying the voices of our peers.
0: Well, you are absolutely doing what you say you are doing. You are amplifying that voice, Sonia. We are so privileged to have you here on this podcast and especially as a part of this literacy leadership mini series. I think your words are going to impact so many. Thanks so much, everybody, for being with us this week. Thank you for joining us on this journey today in our literacy leadership miniseries. Are you ready to embark on a transformative journey through the world of literacy and learning? Look no further than Learning Ally, a beacon of inspiration for learners and educators. At Learning Ally, we believe that every individual deserves access to the magic of words. Our vast library of audiobooks and educational resources open doors to boundless knowledge. From classic literature to textbooks and beyond? We provide accessible content that empowers learners, whether you're a student, an educator, or a lifelong learner. Imagine a world where you can explore, learn, and grow without limitations. With Learning Ally, this vision becomes a reality. We empower students to excel academically, pursue their passions, and dream beyond the pages of a book. Visit learningally.org today to explore our solutions, including our audiobook solution, professional learning, discover the power of literacy, the joy of education, and the limitless possibilities that await you. Visit learningally.org or click the link in the podcast description. We hope to see you there.